those expectations low, preacher. Get situated here. All right, so I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm about to dump like a silly amount of information on y'all. On I've got enough, enough content for like three sermons. I got to fit into like the next like 15 minutes. And I'm hoping you retain like just enough so that hopefully, prayerfully, Joel lets me come back on each, each feast uh, in the calendar and we can really look at them in depth. I want you to kind of retain a little bit of it up to that. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry in advance, kind of, I guess. Um, if I seem like I'm a little scattered, it's just because I'm a little scattered. Um, so last week, I, was, I taught you guys about like looking for a deeper meaning and deeper truth in the text um, by having such an intimate knowledge of the text that you recognize the layers of references. Um, and also by looking for pictures in the text and what those pictures represent. This week I want to take that same idea but narrow it down to a specific set of pictures that God gives us and allows us to both celebrate and participate in his plan of redemption. And that's the feasts. And I could do like, I could easily, if Joel would let me, I could easily do a month-long series on the feasts and not even scratch the surface of what they mean um, to us as, as Christians today um, and how they shaped and mold the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, but I don't have nearly that much time. So I got to like really run today. So if it sounds like I'm, I'm running, it's because I'm running. Um, what I'm really praying is that I, I, I get to do this at, in depth at each feast. But this weekend, actually yesterday was the end of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So what I want to do is get through the whole calendar because Sukkot is the last holiday in the calendar. I want to get all the way through the calendar and then really focus on Sukkot so that we can celebrate what just ended yesterday. So whatever Joel says, buckle up, I only got one gear. So what we're going to start with, just like we started last week, before we look at the word, we're going to rededicate ourselves to God by saying the Shema. Everybody practice and memorize it this week, right? All right, so here we go. You're going to repeat after me in Hebrew, and then we're going to say it together in English. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohinu. Adonai Achad. Ve'ahavta. Et Adonai Elohecha. Bechol Levavcha. Uvachol Navshacha. Bechol Meodecha. Good. That was good. All right, in English, together, and with all of your heart, this is your declaration unto God, who we are and who he is and what we believe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. I like it. So we're given the feast in Leviticus 23. Um, it's a long chapter, so I'm not going to go through the whole chapter. So we'll, we'll, we'll hit some high points here and there. But Leviticus 23:1, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, these are my moedim, my appointed times, the times of the Lord that you will proclaim as sacred assemblies. And that word doesn't mean like, oh, it's a holiday, like, you know, Thanksgiving, and we might celebrate it, and we might celebrate it this day, or we might do this, and some people don't celebrate it. These are moedim, these are appointments. That, you're, that the Israelites and us today are expected to remember, keep, and honor. So there's just big ideas that I want to kind of hit um, as we're going through. The first one is that celebration is at the heart of what it is to worship God. God gives his people 37 days total of holiday in the Bible. And on almost all of those holidays, the commandment is to rejoice before him. And the Hebrew there means to dance joyfully, like literally like, 
dance joyfully before the Lord. And the next thing is that the calendar and the feast themselves belong to God. It came from God, not man. So it's not something that you can just discard as, oh, that's, that was Jewish tradition. We forget about that. These are, these are something that, as I said, the Old Testament and the New Testament are both structured around these feasts. So you can't just throw them away. God says they are my Moedim, which I will allow you to proclaim, basically. Um, but what, what happened in just a quick condensed history, around the time of the Council of Nicaea in 326, there was a concerted effort from the Christian church to say, Jews killed Jesus, we don't like Jews, we don't want to be Jewish. So they actually took things like feasts and said, how can we replace these feasts with our feasts? How can we replace these traditions with our traditions? And, and slowly over time push it away. And what that became when it comes up to our time is we just see them as irrelevant. We don't, we don't, we've never been taught to put any stock into the feasts. We've never heard of these feasts. Especially, you know, when we don't have a, a huge Jewish culture around here, we don't see anybody practicing. So we don't really think about these feasts. But these are something that belong to God that man did not invent. God commanded the feasts, and he gave very general instructions. But then God-fearing and God-loving people created traditions around the feast. Because his, his instructions were very, it was like, dance joyfully before me. Okay, do we dance by ourselves? Do we dance together? Do we dance in Jerusalem? Can we dance in Galilee at home? Do we dance with music? Do we dance not with music? So what they did is, is they sat down and they said within the structure, within the, the framework of the law and the culture that we've been given from God, how can, we, how can we observe these the way God wants us to? What does he want us to do with these commandments? And so over time they created these traditions. And the really cool thing about these traditions is that God honored those traditions by using them and by putting meaning behind them that was used later on. And hopefully I can show that in a few minutes. But if we can understand how these were celebrated in Jesus' time by the first century, then we can get a picture or we can get more of a, a fuller idea of what these feasts would have meant to Jesus and what he would have intended when he was celebrating these feasts. Because we know in the Gospels that he did. He was observant. He went up to the feast that he was to go up to. Um, and so if we have an idea of what, what that looked like to him, then we can have a window into... Um, a window into, into the way that Jesus would have seen these and the way that he was using them to describe himself. And the Gospels themselves are actually, especially uh, the book of John, are choreographed around the feasts. So if you know what you're looking for and, you, and you're, you're watching out for these things, you'll see that it's act, they're actually structured in order of the feast so you can, you can date things by the feasts. So when we're looking for meaning in these feasts, there's three layers of, of the meaning. There's a surface meaning, you know, which is this day means this. Then there's a deeper meaning, which is the symbolism attached to that. But then on top of that, for us, there's the messianic fulfillment. Because there's not one feast that's not fulfilled in the past or we've fulfilled in the future in Christ's Messiah. A good example, I guess. Um, I'll give a couple examples so that makes a little more sense. I know I'm running. So, Passover. I think most of us have a, have a general idea. Passover, you had to select a perfect lamb for sacrifice. And we all kind of know, you know, through, through our Sunday school classes and stuff, or just kind of absorb from the culture that Jesus was our Passover lamb. We know that he was perfect and sinless, and he was that perfect sacrifice. So that's what I'm talking about when we look at both the, uh, the deeper meaning and the messianic fulfillment. We say, okay, I can relate that to Jesus. Um, I understand a little bit about that feast, and now I understand Jesus a little bit better. 
Another thing about Passover is that the sheep for Passover had to come from Bethlehem. Now, that wasn't something that was commanded. That was something they came up with. But the really cool thing about that is that God chose to, um, to use human culture in that way. Because he said, oh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I guess I should have said that part. He either, however you want to look at it, he either made Jesus be born in Bethlehem so they could see that picture, or he made them believe that the sheep had to come from Bethlehem so that when Jesus was born there, they would see that picture. And either way, it's a profound thing that God was willing to use these human traditions. And he did this all the way through all of the feasts. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 um, he's talking about the feast, and that people are asking, well, what are we supposed to do with this? And Paul says, the feasts are a shadow, they're a picture, but Christ is the substance. The feasts, he, he's literally saying there, the feasts are a picture of Christ. If you love Christ, look at the feasts, and you can understand more about him. So what I want everybody to walk away with today, is I want you to walk out of here and say, I had no idea... I could get so much more out of the New Testament by looking for the feasts. So we're gonna, I'm going to run through these feasts real quick. There were three feasts that were known as the Aaliyah. Say Aaliyah. Aaliyah means going up. These are the big three. Passover, Shavuot, which we call Pentecost, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And every Jewish man, um, and you'd usually bring his family if he could, was commanded to go up. And that's the word that you always see. Jesus went up. Mary and Joseph went up. They aliyah to Jerusalem to actually appear in person for these feasts. And that's important later. The next thing is the Jewish day. The Jewish day begins at 6 p.m. and goes until 6 p.m. the next day. So when you're interpreting Bible passages and you see something like Jesus is having the Passover meals with the Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday evening. Well, what day is it to him? Friday. Friday. Does that make sense? Okay. Cool. So, what I want to do now is just kind of move right into the feasts. And I'm going to give you, like, the name, when it happens, and just, I want you guys to just have, like, a ten words or less idea of the theme of each feast. So you kind of get, get an idea. The first holiday season... For us, it's around March or April. Is Pesach. Say Pesach. Passover. Passover is the 14th day of the first month. And the theme, you guys are probably fairly familiar with Passover. Um, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. The plagues have come upon the Egyptians. The final plague, the angel of death, is going to visit uh, the firstborn of each house. They sacrifice a lamb, put the lamb on the doorpost, and the angel of death passes over. It's the barley harvest. These are all agricultural feasts. It's the barley harvest, the early harvest. I'll let you guys do the math on the early harvests and the late harvest later. But the big thing with the Passover is marked by the Seder. Say Seder. Seder is a meal where the head of the house says some prescribed prayers and the family prays and eats together. And they do this in honor of Israel's past deliverance. But we're able to look not only to our, our past deliverance, or the past deliverance of, of the, the previous children of God, but our future deliverance in Christ. And the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, was a Passover Seder. Everything about it, when it says that they're reclining at the table, 
that, was it Peter, had his head on Jesus' chest. This, this was a way that you sat for the Passover Seder. The head of the house would pour four cups of wine, which, which symbolized sanctification, deliverance, redemption, and praise. And then he would pray over bread and break it and pass it around. So when we're doing communion, we're, we're literally honoring a Passover Seder every time we take the Lord's Supper together. Next holiday, Hag Hamatzot. Say Hag Hamatzot. Feast of Unleavened Bread, 15th day of the first month, day after Passover. The theme is asking God or thanking God for giving us food, bread, and life out of the ground. It's when the grain's just first starting to produce heads. And we say, God, please give us bread out of the ground. And the next holiday is Hag Habikarim. Say Hag Habikarim. You guys, you guys already speak Hebrew. I like this. Feast of First Fruits. The first Sunday after unleavened bread. So if Passover's on Monday, unleavened bread's on Tuesday, the next Sunday would be the first fruits. If it's Wednesday, Thursday, the next Sunday. Is it Saturday, Sunday? Then it's the next Sunday. Does that make sense? It's always the next Sunday whenever that falls. And the theme is faith promise. What we're doing is we're bringing to God our first fruits that our fields have produced, even though that's all we got. We say, God, this is all I got. I'm giving it to you. I'm really hoping you give me more. I'm trusting you that you're going to give me the rest. And all three of those are always celebrated together. And in the Bible, you'll see all three referred to as Passover. And you'll see all three referred to as unleavened bread. So sometimes you've got you to really look when they're saying that something happens after. Jesus died on Passover, right? What day was Passover that year? Come on, Good Friday. <laughs> you guys got this. <laughs> He died on Friday, Passover. So what day was unleavened bread? Saturday, the next day. Well, actually, it's Friday night at sunset, which is our Saturday. Unleavened bread is thanking God for life out of the ground. So Jesus is being planted in the ground when the entire Jewish nation is praying for life to come out of the ground. And Jesus himself said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It cannot bear fruit and live. It's a picture. It's always a picture. So when is first fruits? The next Sunday. That year, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Guys, that doesn't happen. It's hundreds of years before it falls Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The three days Jesus prophesied. From, from the beginning of time, God set the rotation of the earth such that those holidays would fall three consecutive days to fulfill the prophecies. Not an accident. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Paul writes, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have died. And why do we bring first fruits? To prove you believe the rest will come. So if Jesus is the first fruits, who's the rest? It's us. That's super cool to me. Next, Shavuot. Say Shavuot. We call it Pentecost. That's the, that's the Greek name. Or the Feast of Harvest, you'll see it in the Bible. It comes 50 days, Penta, 50 days after Passover. Sometimes you'll see it at the Festival of Weeks because it's you know, weeks later. 
The theme is the end of the spring harvest. It's Thanksgiving Day. We're thanking God for the, for the harvest we just, we just got. The second theme is this is the day that um, the Pharisees and the Essenes, who were the closest to Jesus theologically, both believed, was the day that um, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law. So they would celebrate and they'd say, thank you, God, for our harvest. Thank you, God, for the law. And there's a, I, I really wish I had like, if I could just keep you guys to like 3 o'clock, we'd be fine. There's a, a huge thing about Shavuot and how, how the history of Shavuot pertains to what we call the day of Pentecost. Um, which was just another Shavuot in the, in the 1400, no, longer than that, 1800 years or so they had been celebrating this holiday. And we see it as a Christian holiday. Guys, they were celebrating this for, for a thousand years before Christians ever came on the scene. This is a huge, huge holiday, a big deal. Second holiday season. We just finished this up yesterday. Rosh Hashanah. Say Rosh Hashanah. You guys remember when I blew the shofar really badly that day? The Feast of Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year. It's the first day of the seventh month. I know that doesn't make sense to be the new year. Don't worry about that. We'll talk about that next year, hopefully. The theme is the shofar blows to call people to intense confession and repentance. Because God will soon sit in judgment. And it kicks off the ten days called the ten days of awe where it's not just individuals um, praying by yourself or praying in your car and, and repenting. This is, this is repentance for the entire body of Christ. As a, as a people, as a nation, as a country, as a body, we all ask for repentance or ask for forgiveness and we repent. And the 10th day after Rosh Hashanah is Yom Kippur. Say Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement. This is the day that the priest would be allowed to go into the Holy of Holies after an intense purification ritual and ask for forgiveness because this is the day it's believed that God sits in judgment for the next year. It's the holiest day of the entire year. It reminds us that we're fallen creatures who can only survive by the mercy and grace and atonement of God. And they would take two goats that had to be identical and the first goat would be killed and sacrificed in the temple. But the other goat the priest would place, symbolically place the sins of the people on his head. It's called the scapegoat. And they would chase this goat out of the city where it would be abandoned to die. Somebody would make sure it died badly. To kill off the sins of the people. Jesus was both the goat slain and the goat killed outside the city with our sins on his head. And these three together are feasts that haven't been fully fulfilled yet. The Feast of Trumpets gathers the body of the Messiah to the Lord for judgment. Yom Kippur, the, the Lord sits in judgment, and Christ is our atonement. And then the next feast, the last, Sukkot, is the gathering of people to God. So Jesus died on Passover. He's buried on unleavened bread. He rose on first fruits. He sent the Holy Spirit on Shavuot. What do you think the disciples were thinking when Rosh Hashanah rolled around? They probably heard the trumpets were like pulling their shoes on, running out the door. Like, this is why they're riding. Like, he's coming now. They're waiting for Rosh Hashanah that year. And I think, don't, don't write this down if any of you, nobody's writing anything down. So. I think 
that we'll discover someday that Jesus comes back on Rosh Hashanah. Well, the trumpets blow. Because it doesn't make sense otherwise. He died on Passover. He's buried on unleavened bread. He rose on first fruits. He sent the spirit on Shavuot. The second coming, second Tuesday in February. It doesn't make sense to just be a random day. Feasts are important. So that brings us to Sukkot. We're doing good. Sukkot, also called Feast of Tabernacles, also called Feast of Booths, also called Feast of Shelters, also called Feast of Ingathering, also called The Feast. And the theme is wandering in the wilderness when the people lived in Sukkot. Say Sukkot. Say Sukkah. Sukkot is the plural form of Sukkah. And a Sukkah is, it's like a little, I don't even know what you call it, you know the little pop-up tents you go tailgating with? Picture that made out of sticks and like palm branches. And this is something that shepherds would live in as they were like traveling around with their flock. They would throw these things up and they could take it down in, in the night. And this is what the Israelites lived in when they wandered in the desert. And they called this also a tabernacle. It translates directly into the King James English as tabernacle. So we picture a tabernacle as like, you know, like the Mormon tabernacle, like this beautiful building. But a tabernacle is one of these, you know, pop-up canopies. And so God says, I will make my tabernacle in the middle of my people. And so Sukkot, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating God being willing to come down and live in this little crappy tent in the middle of everybody. And today, well, let me back up a little bit. The commandment for Sukkot is for everybody to live in these things for seven days. And so even today, you'll go to Israel, and there'll be like a Coleman tent popped up in the road. Everybody's living in tents. It's a camping holiday. My favorite holiday. And you'll see it called, as I said, the feast, in contrast to Yom Kippur, which is called the fast. But the two big things, and if you are writing things down, the two big themes are provision and the presence of God. Let's take a quick look. Leviticus 23, verse 39. You are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days after you have gathered the produce of the land. There will be complete rest on the first day and complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you are to take the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You are to celebrate it as a festival to the Lord seven days each year. This is a permanent statute for you throughout your generations. Celebrate it in the seventh month. You are to live in shelters for seven days. All the native-born of Israel must live in shelters so that your generations will know, I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Sukkot is the capstone to the holiest time of the year. The entire calendar culminates in this festival. We look at, I don't have it on here, so I'm going to pull it up. Look at this Bible drill skills. Y'all see that? Didn't even have it marked. First Kings 8. At that time, okay, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> so fast forward. We're, we're out, of out of tents now. Solomon's just finished the temple. And he's asking the Lord God to move out of his sukkah and into the temple. And at that time, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the tribal heads, 
and the ancestral leaders of the Israelites before him at Jerusalem in order to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from the city of David, that is Zion. So the men of Israel were assembled in the presence of King Solomon in the seventh month, the month of Ethanim, at the festival. And they, they bring the ark in. There's, there's a lot of ceremony. I'm going to skip. It's a long chapter. I'm going to skip down. What did I say last week? When you see the physical presence of God in the Old Testament, what, what form does it take? Smoke and fire. When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Solomon said, I have indeed built an exalted temple for you, a place for you to tabernacle forever. The same story is in 2 Chronicles. Because it was smoke and fire. They got to watch God move into the temple on Sukkot. How much more joyous, how much more celebratory could you be? And to know your God is, is there. Your child comes to you and they're scared, they're afraid. I've, I've heard of the Babylonians, are they coming? Come here. You see that? God's in there. Saw the smoke and fire. The oral history of the Jews and their traditions were written down in documents called the Talmud and the Mishnah. Talmud says, He who has not beheld the celebration of Sukkot has never seen joy in his life. The Mishnah says, men of piety and good deeds. What I want you to insert there is like deacons in their suits. Would dance before them, which is, I'll tell you about these in a minute, but they're giant torches, giant menorah, with lighted torches in their hands, and they would juggle and dance, singing songs and praises. Levites without number played harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and other musical instruments there, and this is important, on the 15 steps leading down from the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women. So if you're in the temple, I don't have a picture of the temple, picture like six football fields, and then you're looking at the Holy of Holies there in the distance. That's the court of the priests. But this big middle area here is the court of the women. And it's called that because the women could go anywhere in the temple they wanted to go except the Holy of Holies, except for one day a year. Don't have time for that. But one day a year they could only go to the court of the women, so they called it court of the women. Jesus loved teaching in the court of the women. You'll see it over and over. I think it's because it was big and he had a big audience there. I'm gonna do this. Come on. So there were seven days of this continuous juggling, feasts, music, dancing, just having a blast. And then on the eighth day, a solemn assembly, a prayer before the Lord. Shemini Yatzeret, which means eighth day. That was yesterday. And one of the things that I think is really important, this is a little off topic, but I want to talk about it because it's cool. Um, I, I mentioned last week that I think I can make a really good case for Jesus being born on Sukkot. So I'm going to make that case. Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Tells him you're going to have a baby. Your baby's going to be Elijah. And then he appears to Mary. He says, you're going to have a baby. Your baby's going to be way cooler than Elijah. 
And we know that that was six months. So they're six months apart. So if we can pinpoint the date that John was born, then we can kind of pinpoint the date Jesus was born. Luke 1, 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abia's division named Zechariah. You remember last week I said there's not one line anywhere in this book that's not important. Because it's the very word of God. And there's something he wants you to get from these details. 1 Chronicles 24 lays out the courses of the priests. There were 24 courses of priests who would serve one week at a time, twice a year in the temple. So we can actually look at, at, at Chronicles and say, well, when was the division of Abiah in the temple? This week and this week. Cool, we've narrowed it down to two weeks. That's the only time Zechariah could have been in the temple. We're told that the shepherds were in their fields. Well, shepherds are only allowed in the fields. These are, these are, these are farming fields. These are wheat fields. You don't just let, the, just let sheep run around in there. Anybody who's got sheep knows they're going to ruin your fields. There's only one time a year they could do that. So we know, we can, we can pinpoint right there when it was. Well, guess what happens six months after John would have been born? Sukkot. Not only that, but in Luke 1.20, Gabriel calls it an appointed time. What did I tell you appointed time was? Feasts, the Moed. And this, the similarities in this story are almost identical to when the angel of the Lord appeared to Abram and Sarah and told them when Isaac was going to be born. And so using the rabbinical uh, hermeneutic, the, the rabbinical method of interpreting the Bible, they would say, okay, um, so obviously he was born on a holiday. What holiday was Isaac born on? I don't know. I didn't write that down. But we know that it was a holiday. So applying that same hermeneutic, we can say, okay, so they use the same language here purposefully. So which appointed time, which moed was John born on? Luke 1, 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah is always, always, always associated with Passover. When you have your Passover Seder, you leave an empty seat at the table for Elijah in case he shows up. You read from Micah stories of Elijah. You read, there's, there's prescribed readings that all pertain to Elijah. So, so every Jew would know Passover equals Elijah. So as soon as we have Elijah talk here, in the spirit of power of Elijah, we say, okay, clearly John's born on Passover. What is six months from Passover? Well, not six months from Passover. Where do you end up? You end up at Sukkot. And Passover initiates the festival season that culminates in Sukkot. So it prepares the way for Sukkot. It prepares our hearts for Sukkot. I'm going to skip a little bit, but it's also important that the, the angels were singing glory to God in the highest. Luke writes his book in kind of a rough Greek. And that Greek, when you, when you translate it a little bit better from the Hebrew, they're singing Hoshana, Hosanna in the highest. Hoshanah, the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118, which is sung on Sukkot. The angels appear and they're singing Sukkot carols to the shepherds, songs they would have recognized as the songs of the season. It's also important for our future. Zechariah 14, 
The entire chapter is about the final victory of God as the king, the Melech Halawam, king of the universe. And all the survivors from the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. Should any of the families of the earth not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of armies, rain will not fall on them. And if the people of Egypt, the quintessential Gentiles, will not go up and enter, the rain will not fall on them. This will be the plague the Lord inflicts on the nations who do not go up, who do not aliyah to celebrate the festival of shelters. This will be the punishment of Egypt and all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of shelters. And I want somebody to explain to me what part of that sounds like. You guys in Seneca in 2020, you're cool. This was for Jews a long time ago. It's the only feast that we're specifically told elsewhere we will celebrate forever. We'll always celebrate God tabernacling in our midst. So passages like that to the first century, but let's bring it up to, to Jesus' time, to the first century Jewish worshiper, Sukkot came to symbolize the king reigning in his kingdom and literally reigning on his kingdom. So by the time of Jesus, there were two very elaborate ceremonies that were kind of the, the pinnacle of Sukkot. The water libation or the water drawing ceremony and the illumination ceremony. Jews had this idea way before Jesus, he wasn't the first to talk about it, called of living water. Dead water is water from a pond, um, an oasis, a well, um, a, a cistern. This is water that's not moving, that, that you collected, that you, you drew. Living water comes from God. Rain, streams, rivers. And only living water could cleanse you spiritually. So when they would have their mikvah, before you came in to worship, you would stop at this pool of water that had to be living water, and you'd wash um, head, heart, hands, and feet. Your head to cleanse your thoughts, your heart to cleanse your will, your hands to cleanse your, your works, and your feet to cleanse your walk. And the mikvah was all important. There was the pool of Siloam, which you guys will remember from Jesus healing the blind man. The pool of Siloam was where the travelers would stop when they came into Jerusalem to mikvah before they even entered the holy city. But being in the desert, they were all dependent on water. None of these other feasts happen if they don't get the rain. None of their spiritual cleansing can happen if they don't get the living water. And so one of the biggest things about, about the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles became, God, please give us water. Maim Chaim. Say Maim Chaim. Maim Chaim, living water. Please. We need it. Living water is, is, is fresh. It's fast-flowing. It's self-sustaining water. You don't have to feel. It fills itself, and it always brings life. And health and cleansing. And so for each of the first uh, six days of, of Sukkot, you have to imagine this is an aliyah. Every family in Israel is in Jerusalem. 
Jewish historian Josephus says, I think something like three million people are in this little city. People everywhere. And they're dancing, and they, they've got these palm branches, and they're waving these palm branches like, um, I don't even know how to describe it, like, like, like waving flags on the 4th of July. Little kids have their palm branches. Adults have their palm branches. They're waving them. Shh, it's loud. And they're all singing, Hoshana! Say Hoshana! Loud, Hoshana! 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 Keep it going. Come on, Hoshana! Loud! Hoshana! God save us, please! How? My Chaim! And they're chanting and they're dancing. And the priest would have this golden pitcher up at the altar in the Temple Mount. And he'd get out in front of all the people, Hoshana, Hoshana. He'd hold it over his head like Brock Lesnar with the WWE title. <laughs> and he would pour it. No water. So he would go all the way down. Can I get the picture up here of the Temple Mount? This is the Holy of Holies, the little square building up there. He'd come all the way down these stairs, all the way through all of these people, a crowd he couldn't even move through, all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, the only living water. He'd fill that pitcher, and he'd walk all the way back up to the Temple Mount, and everybody's just trying to touch his robe as he comes by, just trying to get a little bit of that life. And they're all chanting, Hoshana, Hoshana. Hoshana, how, Mein Chaim. And he gets up to the top and he pours the water over the altar. Back up. He walks around the altar once. Then he pours it on the altar for six days. On the seventh day, now we're, we've been partying all week. We're at a fever pitch. You can't get more excited, more joyful. Your, your deacons are over here juggling torches and dancing. Pharisees are dancing with torches and, and musical instruments and stuff. And he, he takes the, the picture and he walks through and everybody's just getting louder and louder. They're shaking the palm branches. They're beating them on the ground. Hoshana! Hoshana! And he fills the water. He goes back up to the top. And he goes around the altar not one time but seven times. Chant with me. Hoshana! 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 Keep it going. And he stands up at the top. And he holds it up in the air, and it goes completely silent. Three million people, dead silent. In that silence, we have the text. We get John 7.34. I didn't put it on here. The next one. On the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Hosanna Rabbah, the great Hosanna. In that silence, Jesus stood up and cried out, I am living water. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And rivers of living water will flow out of him. The crowd stands silent. Don't ever come to me and say Jesus didn't say he was God. Of course he did. But he used a picture because he's Jewish. There's not a soul in that temple that didn't know what he was saying. Early in the week, 
three 75-foot-high menorah were erected in the court of the women. Gallons and gallons of oil were carried all the way up the ladders by priests' apprentices and filled. And they made wicks for these torches out of the priests' old robes. They would burn day and night all the way through the festival. And we're told in the Mishnah that not a courtyard in Jerusalem wasn't lit up by these things. Right in front of the Holy of Holies. It's about eight hours after Jesus has kind of ruined their ceremony. <laughs> and it says that everybody's talking about Jesus. They're in their, they're in their Sukkot. Everybody's going, who is this guy? He just said he was God. Is he? No way. He's from Galilee. He's got a Seneca accent. Prophets don't come from Galilee. Except in Isaiah 9. In the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. For the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. By the timeline, it would have been dark. These torches are still standing. They're still burning in the court of the women. And John tells us that Jesus is sitting by the treasury, which is literally at the feet of these torches, with his disciples and with the Pharisees. And they're all trying so hard to understand what he said earlier in the day. Who are you? He looks them in the eye and he says, Ihe or haolam! I am the light of the world. Not this. It's a picture of me. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To stand on the temple mount, on the Feast of Tabernacles, when we celebrate the king reigning forever, and to look those scholars in the eye and say, I am the light. They can't misunderstand that unless they're trying to. Because Jesus is saying, I am the Shekinah glory. I am the pillar of fire that led them through the desert. I am the flaming torch of Abram. I am the fire that filled the temple. I'm living water. I'm life. I'm salvation. I'm your mikvah. Head, heart, hands, and feet. Where were Jesus' wounds that are mentioned? In one day, Jesus claimed all power and authority as the provision and the presence of Almighty God. And he did it a few dozen feet from where the Holy Spirit still dwelled behind the curtain. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the, new, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Later on, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon. For the glory of the God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life, living water, without price. Festivals are important. How many times have we heard Jesus stood up and said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me? A million times. When you understand the feast, you understand he was making a, a real declaration in, in danger of his life. In the middle of millions of people who are dead silent in awe and reverence. And he says, I'm that water. I'm that light. What did the word of God, Jesus, say to Moses out of the bush? And he stands up in front of everybody. I am. Still the next chapter. Who are you? Who are you? Why have you come? He said, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. He said, I did tell you, and you don't believe. And I've shown you many good works. Which of these are you trying to kill me for? What I want for, for me and my family, and for my family here, that we look deep into the Bible and we look for these pictures so that we can know the voice of God and what he's trying to tell us. And I hope that I didn't go too far over and I'm not, I, I didn't go too fast. You guys let me come back for other feasts in the spring. And we can take a look at each one because each one is just like this. Each one is so beautiful. So I'm going to pray over you guys the same way I did last week, and I'm going to turn it over to Joel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, amen.